0: Turn in the Word of God this evening to Luke 19, the Gospel of Luke, and the 19th chapter. I think there may be one or two wondering whether the change of time is some conspiracy in which I'm trying to get extra time to preach, and you'll just get out at the same time as (laughs) usual. (laughs) That is not the case at all. (laughs) Uh, But I I will say I'm I'm keeping very much at the forefront of my mind that that minute hand needs to be in a different place uh, when I finish tonight than usual. So generally my internal clock for preaching is sort of thereabouts. I'm aware of the time we've spent usually, but uh, you never know. But we're continuing in our series in the Gospel of Luke, and we are in the 19th chapter. I want us to commence reading verse 11, It's fairly lengthy, in comparison to the portions we usually deal with as a parable, and a somewhat It's not necessarily challenging, but it's perhaps one that isn't as familiar as others. So pay attention to the reading of God's Word, Luke 19, verse 11. As they heard these things, he added and spake a parable, because he was nigh to Jerusalem, and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, Then he commanded these servants to be called unto him to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, have thy authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said likewise to him, Be thou also over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. For I fear thee, because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up that thou laidst not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. And he saith unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then, gavest not thou my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury? And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it to him that hath ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he hath ten pounds. For I say unto you, that unto every one which hath shall be given, and from him that hath not even that he hath, shall be taken away from him. But those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither, and slay them before me. Amen. And the Lord bless the public reading of His Word to our hearts this evening, and help us in our understanding of... This text. Let's bow together in prayer, beloved. Let's seek the Lord and pray for the Spirit to be in our midst. Our God, it is Thy presence that maketh the feast. And we are as Mephibosheth, we are lame, and yet we have been brought to the King's table. And we pray that we might feast at the King's table tonight and that Thou wilt nourish our souls according as we have need. Help Thy people. Speak to us all. Remember, preacher and listener, may we, O God, all know that the Lord has given a word to us, a word appropriate, a word we hearken to, a word we obey. For those that are called for those that may be unsaved. We pray for a word for them. So Lord, I pray, deliver me from merely rambling through sermon notes. Give a message. May we hear the message. Shut us in. Give a sense of solemnity because there is a solemnity to this text. May it not be missed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the necessary aspects of parenting is becoming accustomed to the need for repetition. You have to embrace repetition as a way of life, especially for mothers, I might say. Usually they're spending more time around the children. Sit down, push your chair in, clear up after yourself, brush your teeth keep your shoes on, and over and on and on it goes. These are not things we say once. These are things we say once every few minutes, or certainly several times a day. Our Lord Jesus faced the same challenge, embracing repetition as part of His ministry, that He couldn't say something once and trust that it had sunk in, but needing continually to bring matters before the people. So we began in verse 11, as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable, because he was nigh to Jerusalem, and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. So they have this thought, and they begin to discuss things, and no doubt the context in part has contributed to the discussion. We have this desire in their hearts for, and we're not told who that they are, whether it is the disciples are included, we're not told that, so... Whoever the multitude are, or the general uh, people that are gathered on this occasion, they begin to discuss this desire that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. They are thinking that, no doubt, talking about that, and again, the context has no doubt contributed to their feeling regarding this. You can see the what has happened, the back in the previous chapter with the the, the, the sight given to blind Bartimaeus. From verse 35 and following, as the Lord Jesus comes into Jericho, there's this blind man who's begging, and he cries out, "Jesus, thou Son of David, have mercy on me!" And he keeps crying out, even though they try to tell him to be quiet. And eventually, the Lord comes and gives his sight. And there's a great movement. There's tremendous energy that charges the. Crowd that are there. Look at verse 43. Immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. So he's contributing to the energy, and all the people, when they saw it, give praise unto God. Our Lord Jesus then moves into Jericho and passes through, and he comes then across Zacchaeus. We looked at this last Lord's Day. And on this occasion, we have another notable person, not noted for some ailment or some. disability that he had, but noted for his job, for his reputation in that job. He also is transformed. There's there's such a change, and no doubt people are muttering through the crowd, did you hear what Zacchaeus said? He has promised to give half of his wealth to the needy. And this again would have filled the air, and people would have been discussing. Few people give half their wealth to the needy, certainly in the middle of their life might be something people do uh, at the end of their lives where they send much of their wealth away to various humanitarian needs or whatever. But here is a man, upon his conversion, gives half of his wealth away. So there's great energy. And of course, then the people begin to talk in this way that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. And it may, and I can't say for sure, but it may be that there is an influence here even from the language Verse 9, Jesus said unto Zacchaeus, This day is salvation, come to this house. And I wondered whether or not that contributed. Because salvation doesn't just mean the personal salvation of the soul. The word is often used with regard to national deliverance. And house is often used as a word to represent Israel. And perhaps then there was muttering that here, deliverance has come to the house of Israel. Maybe their mind was going that way. Even verse 10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. We immediately, many of us at least, have an understanding of this has relevance to the individual soul. Christ pursuing individual sinners and seeing them one in salvation. But to the Jew, they might hear this language, that He has come to bring salvation to all the lost privileges of the nation. So it may be that the Lord's words are being turned here by the crowd and they're beginning to think in this, this way as He makes His way to Jerusalem and they begin to think that the kingdom of God, they desire and perhaps are sensing perhaps this is what's about to occur. The kingdom of God should immediately appear. Now this is despite everything Jesus had already taught. I'm not going to go through, but right back to chapter 9. On a couple of occasions there, chapter 12, 13, 17, 18, I just scanned through the chapters and noted various passages where there's this emphasis that He's going to Jerusalem, He's going to die. And even certain parables that give the sense, again, of, of Him going away, not that He is staying to establish a kingdom here and now. Now, I don't know whether the disciples are getting caught up in the, the interest of this. It may be. You go back to chapter 18, verse 31. He took unto him the twelve and said unto them. Again, he's emphasizing something he's already taught. We go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. You see what's the details given there. Verse 34 says, They understood none of these things. And this saying was hid from them. Neither knew they the things which were spoken. So, the disciples perhaps weren't helping matters they also may have been contributing in the discussion or at least being caught up in the thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear here, visibly now. How quickly we as men are drawn into thoughts of ease. Never forget it, beloved. There must be the cross before the crown. And the Lord Jesus is the epitome of modeling that. And when you have thoughts of desire for ease, when you want life just to be easier, when your prayers start to be governed by a desire, just make my life easier, Lord, often, I'm not saying always, but often we are misunderstanding the Lord's intention for our experience here. It is the cross, then the crown. It is bearing the cross daily. He filters His people. He causes them to shine forth even more brilliantly and vibrantly because they bear suffering in this world while maintaining a faithful, steadfast love for their Lord. As I read over this passage and wondered what to title this parable as we look at it together, had all sorts of, sometimes you get just real clarity, here's, here's, here's what I want to emphasize, here's the, the angle I want to go, but there were so many statements in this passage in various ways in which it could have been taken, but I'm just going to make it very blunt and plain tonight. A warning not to waste your life, a warning not to waste your life because that's really the heart of it. There are other details, there are other aspects, but our Lord is essentially laying out a warning. And among those warnings is primarily this emphasis. Don't waste your life. There are five headings. These are very simple. looking here at our Lord Jesus in this passage. You may call him the nobleman, you may call him a king of sorts because he's getting a kingdom, but you will note here his intention, his instruction, his opposition, his commendation, and his retribution. Those are the five headings that will govern our thoughts as we move through these verses with the Lord's help. Look first of all then at his intention. Verse 12, he said, therefore, all right, on the basis of the misunderstanding, he's in proximity to Jerusalem, there's a presumption about the kingdom coming. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. The nobleman, as most understand, is reflecting the Lord Jesus himself, and his intention is to go away, receive for himself a kingdom, and to return. That's the intention. So Christ is contradicting any thought about an immediate, visible representation of His reign on the earth. He has guaranteed a victory before Him, but it will not be displayed on the earth in the way that these individuals desire and are so focused upon. And remember, this is filling the minds of the disciples right up to the ascension. They're thinking this way. This is, this is such aspiration for national deliverance that will come by the hand of the Messiah. And they refuse or they are blind to or unable to perceive what actually is the plan of God. So Christ is contradicting it here by this parable. And going to a far country reflects His absence between His ascension and second coming. goes to a far country. It's going away. The sense is, It's a far country because it's a sense of delay. If a man goes to a far country, you're expecting it's going to be a while before he returns. That's being driven into the heart of this, that you're going to be waiting a while. So Lord Jesus, His intention is to go away, to receive for Himself a kingdom before He returns. Now, this is not to deny his current reign after his ascension. It's not, we're not to see this parable as saying, well, his reign will come later once he has gathered to himself a kingdom or it's given to him. We know that our Lord is reigning right now. This is the emphasis of Peter on the day of Pentecost. In Acts 2, Acts 3 as well, language that emphasizes the fact that Jesus Christ currently is reigning. He has this present reign if it wasn't made plain in Peter's sermon, we would note by what our Lord says concerning the Great Commission that the authority of His disciples to go into the nations and invade other territories is because all power is given to Him. So Christ, sitting at the Father's right hand, He does so until all His enemies are under Him. Paul says He must reign until He hath put all enemies under His feet, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-five. So there's nothing to suggest that he is not reigning now. He sits at the right hand of the Father, that's a place of authority. He he governs from heaven. He causes all things to be driven towards the benefit of the church, according to Ephesians. So he oversees the church in her adversity and her prosperity. He sends forth his word as a sovereign by which men will finally be judged. He regenerates sinners, sanctifies saints, empowers them by His Spirit, nourishes them by His grace. He makes use of Satan for His glory and lets nothing ultimately prevail against the church. That's now it's part of His reign. However, however, He has not yet subdued all His enemies. He has not yet appeared as judge of the world. He has not yet revealed His majesty In many ways, we might say His reign is concealed in all of its glory, not yet manifest to all. And the revelation of the full power of that reign will come at the last day. So He goes away to receive or obtain a kingdom. That's verse 12 and verse 15. It came to pass that when He was returned, having received the kingdom. So He goes to receive it, and he, he succeeds in receiving it. So the plan of the Lord Jesus to go away and have this intermission is not one that will fail. He knows it will succeed. So he is obtaining a kingdom that he is going to, according to 1 Corinthians 15, give to the Father. Of course, the question comes around, well, is a lot of this reserved until an earthly millennial reign on uh, from Jerusalem or whatever? I'm not getting into that. You know that you can hold to that here and hold to other legitimate views. We must keep the point of the parable in focus, and that is to see that he, he goes to get a kingdom and he comes back, but the emphasis isn't even so much on that. The intention is important. The intention is important, especially with regard to this aspect, he's coming back. So we might debate what does it mean to obtain a kingdom and how does that work out and is this his people going out to preach the gospel and discuss the ways in which he obtains that kingdom? That all may be discussed whether it's now or it's pointing to a future time. But the primary thought is this He's coming back. He is coming back. He will return to hold men accountable. So keep that in focus. His intention. Secondly, his instruction. His instruction. Verse 13. And he called, this nobleman called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. Ten is a round, complete number in Scripture often. It's obviously not referring to the apostles. It's just a round number to signify those who serve Him. Now, we will learn as we go through that not all here are as faithful as they should be. And so we're not to understand this, that they are all equally faithful. I think in some ways we might look at verse 13 and see there the visible church. The visible church. That there's a visible church, a visible body, a united body made up of multiples, and they are given ten pounds. Everyone gets a pound each. So again, this is different from the parable of the talents where there's distinction made in what is given. There we are taught that people are given initially Varying gifts and abilities, and they are to use those. And everyone is in a different place here, however. Everyone is given the same thing. So then we start asking the question, well, what is this, this pound that the servants are given? If everyone gets the same, how are we to understand it? Well, I can't, I can't be dogmatic, <laughs> It doesn't tell us explicitly, but if we think about what all the church is given that is the same, in one sense you might just make it this, it's the gospel. You might say it's the word of God. There may be other aspects or angles that you may take, but I think the gospel is, is, is a helpful way just to see it, generally speaking, that all these servants are given the same gospel. They're given the same message. And they are to handle that message. And they are to be busy in the use of that message. Look at what it says. They are told, again, to occupy. They are to be busy. They are to be active. They are to trade and do business with regard to this thing that has been given to them, which, as I suggest, is the gospel. You think of the warring saints and how they're described in Revelation 12, verse 11 and their opposition to the enemy that they overcame, the devil, their adversary, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Again, don't read that as being their personal testimony of saving faith. It's the Word of God. It's the finished work of Christ and the declaration of the Word of God that gives victory over Satan. So then again, you think, well, that maybe summarizes exactly what is deposited to, to believers. It's the gospel we're given. The gospel, and we are to be busy with the gospel. Occupy till I come. They're given instruction. He has an intention. He's going to go away, receive a kingdom, and return. And in the meantime, be busy till I come back. That's the instruction. Be busy with what I've given you, my beloved. <laughs> this has a multifaceted application to us because if we're right in this. If, if, if looking at it in terms of the gospel is close to the mark, in terms of what our Lord intended, then how are we to understand this? We're to understand this, that every aspect of our lives is to have this sense of, in the business of our lives, every single day, the gospel is central. Now, immediately your mind, my mind went to it, my mind went to preachers. And I think of how they are charged with the same gospel. The same gospel that is given to preachers right across this world in different generations is the gospel that we endeavor to preach here. It's the same. And what are you going to do with it? But I don't think we have to narrowly keep it upon preachers. The gospel is given into the hands and deposited to every single believer. The gospel. And it's not simply about how we trade with it If you can use that language in the context of the parable, trade with it in terms of our declaration and evangelism of it, that obviously plays a part. But we are to be busy till he comes. And the reality is, beloved, we have seasons of life. And there are times. There are times where you can't do what you did before. Then what do you say? Can you no longer occupy? Can you no longer be busy? Are you sidelined? Are you set aside by the Lord and His providence so that there's nothing you can do to trade in a way that receives His commendation? Of course, that's not the case. We can be busy with the gospel in every context, in any context. Placed on our backs, unable to move, Paralysed by sickness. There we can occupy till he comes. Cumbered with the burdens of family life and little children taking up every moment of your day, exhausting you to no end. Occupy. Apply the gospel. First of all, in your own heart. Keeping it there. Being busy with the gospel in your own soul. Not living life like at some Faint memory where the gospel was relevant and joyful back in the past, but to this day, praise God! This morning, the gospel is for me. Being busy in its application in your own life, and of course, distributing it to those those children, <laughs> those little ones, those those that you teach in a class where you get opportunity those that you work with, those that you serve in your employment. It's bringing the gospel into every scenario. When the family's overwhelmed and they don't know what to do, when you've lost work or employment or someone's sick or something else is happening, it is taking, it is seizing upon that pound and putting it to work. Putting the gospel to work. And this, we please our master. We please him. We go into the community, obviously, this week. What are we doing? Trying to occupy. Be busy. Trade with what we've been given. This is a little community here in the middle of Greenville, and the gospel is here, and we invite these families to bring their children so that we might be busy... With this pound that we have, let's give them the gospel. Let's tell them about Jesus Christ. Let's seize upon every opportunity to make it known to them that they can be saved. And everything else that we do, every other aspect, don't see it in some linear, narrow way. That's how I first read it, and I thought, how foolish I can only occupy when I, when I stand in this pulpit, or I can only occupy when I'm talking to someone who needs me to minister to them in some way. Is that the only time when I'm busy for the Master? Or can we? Shouldn't we be constantly bringing the gospel into every area of our lives? Talking about it, being joyful in it, sharing it. This is the instruction. If you get nothing else, the language of verse 13 should frequently be on your mind, Christian. Occupy till I come. I pray over those words with a measure of regularity. God, help me to occupy till you come. Till the Lord returns or I'm called. Occupy. Staying busy. Doing something that matters. Persevering. Yes, persevering. Till I come. (laughs) Don't stop. Don't start well and finish badly. Don't begin with great gusto and then drop off. Keep laboring. Every day, all the time. When your energy is zapped, but there's still an opportunity. Oh God, help me. Like John Knox, the end of his life, being lifted into the pulpit by his oxters. Encouraged, carried up the steps and into the pulpit to stand there. Preach the Word. I love that story. I love seeing this old, kind of bent-over man who's <laughs> done battle like few others, and being carried into the pulpit, helped down the street to the church, or up the street to the church and into the pulpit, and he's slowly exegeting the text and the passage, and sort of moving way through it, and perhaps showing his age maybe in his physical demeanor. But when he comes to the application, and he's like, Here's the point was it he'd dung the pulpit in blads and was near, near flew out of it, flew out of the pulpit, that is. Energy, staying busy. Oh, Christian, be busy. Be busy for Jesus. This what, what he's expecting. This is his instruction. This is his instruction to you. Be busy till I come. Be busy till I come. So ask yourself, am I busy? Am I? Do I know how to take the gospel every day and apply it first to myself, then to those in my life, then to those that God in his providence would put under me or bring it my way? Occupy. Occupy. Seize upon every opportunity take every chance to put the gospel before people. Sometimes it's you that puts the gospel before them. Be busy in that. Sometimes you're getting people under the gospel, and you're trying to bring them to church. Get them to this house of God. Be, be busy in that. I, I think we've come to a time where we no longer really invite people to church, not in the way people in the past did. We don't. We're not busy inviting them, bothering them. Come to church, and they say, no, I've got this. Say, so, you know, you, you may think it's an excuse, and you 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 let it pass this time, but then you keep peppering them until finally they they have no more excuses. And they have two options. Either relent and go, or say, listen, I just don't want to go. (laughs) And they finally be honest with you. So that's the instruction. Persevere, Christian. And let me say to those of you who are, God bless you, and God strengthen you, and help you to keep just... Treasuring what pound the Lord has given to you. The gospel that you hold in your hands and in your heart. And just like we sang, something for thee. Thirdly, opposition. Verse 14, opposition. But as citizens, different category of people are described here. As citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. It's clear then that there is a message for those that will not bow the knee to the Lord Jesus. And of course, we we know they're there. Verse 7, when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. And so there are there's animosity in the crowd, as there always was, nearly always. And so he has a word for them too. They're citizens. Most understand this to be the Jews. Speaking generally, the Jews who opposed rather than submit to his word. And you see, first of all, in this opposition, there's bitter hatred. His citizens hated him. It's not like they see him as inconvenient, they hate him. And so it is to this day. Unbelieving Jews still hate Jesus of Nazareth. Don't be deluded. They can't do anything but hate him, just like you would hate any false Christ. They view him as a false Christ. They're not shy about the animosity they have towards Jesus. And the Lord then doesn't change the reality. He states it plainly. They hate him. And there's also explicit rejection, not just bitter hatred, but explicit rejection. We will not have this man to reign over us. We will not. Thinking, reading that and thinking to myself, you know, people who have a a problem with saying that you need to make Jesus your Lord. You bow the knee, you don't just pray a prayer, you, you crown Jesus Lord of your life. You say it, you declare it, you own it, you recognize it. Don't really make it that he is Lord of your life. He already is in one sense, but you acknowledge him to be so. And people say it's going too far. Or, That's some second level Christianity. Well, not according to the Lord. He summarized the rejection of the Jews in this way. We will not have this man to reign over us. Their unbelief is summarized in that way. We won't have him, it's not that we believe in him, but we won't have him reign over us. Their unbelief is summarized by a rejection of of His Lordship, we will not have this man to reign over us. Now this is relevant also to the servants, isn 't it? it 's opposition, because this is the context in which they serve. This is, this is part of what they will be challenged with as they try to occupy until the Lord comes back. they 're not in an atmosphere where everyone 's their friend where people want what they have to give, where they're coming with this gospel, this gospel that has transformed their lives, this gospel that makes men say, I'll give away half of my wealth. That same gospel that they love is hated, despised, utterly rejected. And this therefore makes it a challenge. Oh, child of God, (laughs) you know it already. The challenge of maintaining your fidelity and loyalty to Christ every day is made all the more difficult, not by simply the weakness of your own frame, but by the daily opposition to Christ you face. If you walked into your place of work and everybody loved Jesus, and everyone you served as a customer love the lord and every time you went down the street you just hear the the echoes of christian praises moving through the town center people coming together to to pray for one another this this you imagine this scene in greenville Going into your little neighbourhood and on your street, your little cul-de-sac, and seeing people out with their Bibles and singing praises and then joining together to sing the doxology. It would be a very different experience. Instead, you face people who are not given to what you have. They don't want what you have. They make trading very difficult. They make it hard. They don't want what you're offering. They're not interested in what you present. They want you to be quiet, to be silent, to go away. Talk to me about anything but that. And so you have this pressure. Stop being busy for the Lord. Be busy in your, be busy in your work. Be busy in your education. Be busy in your aspirations your desires for the future. Just don't bring the gospel into it. Christian, occupy till he comes. Don't stop. You keep, keep bringing the gospel every day, even though it face, you face opposition, even though the hatred towards the master gets transferred in his absence to the servant's, you keep occupying till he comes. So, we've seen already his intention, his instruction, his opposition, and then his commendation. There is here commendation. Verse 15 and the following. Let's just read these verses came to pass, that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him to whom he had given the money. they might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, have thou authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said likewise to him, Be thou also over five cities. We'll just end there for now. I was reading this, and you know it's encouraging? The emphasis of the servants. As they come to that time where their life is being weighed and judged by their Lord. The first comes saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. Thy pound. And the emphasis is is almost like it was nothing to do with me in one sense. Now, they were given responsibility for it, but it's not, look what I have accomplished. It's, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. There's a detachment in the language. that The servant is not quick to suggest that it's all down to his own great labors. Thy pound hath gained ten pounds. It's like how the Lord's people are. They're not quick to take credit for what they have done. They recognize that what have we that we have not received? There are a few things to see here about these servants who are commended. First, their reputation. Their reputation. Well, thou good servant... It's a good servant. This is how the Lord evaluates. And it's the same to the second as well. It doesn't state it in the same way. He's not told good, but the sense is that there's commendation towards him as well. These are good servants. And that's the best that we can hope for, beloved. Of all your thoughts about your life, and all you hope to achieve, and all you desire to see accomplished. Bottom line, you ought to hope for this. Jesus says, I have been a good servant. Now, we enter into the unbelief of the world when that seems to be weightless or insignificant to us. When the master says, good servant, we're almost as unbelieving as the world. We want men to have accolades. We want to have credit for this, that, and the other. We, we have certain desires and prayers, and they're not wrong. I'm not saying that we're all misled in our prayers, But I do ask myself and you tonight, how often do we simply pray, Lord, please help me, so that when it comes to the end, I receive well done. Good servant. Because a whole lot is going to be burned up. That is going to last. Reputation. Reputation before the nobleman, reputation before the master. That's what we want. Not only reputation, responsibility. Thou hast been faithful in a very little. In a very little. You were given a pound. Some suggest this might be about three months' wages for a laborer. So it's not a lot. But he's managed to multiply it sufficiently. Tenfold. But I think we're meant to see that it's nothing like what the responsibility is that he is going to be given. We'll get to that in just a moment. There is a responsibility. The Lord senses it. You've been faithful. That that comes charged with meaning, doesn't it? You've been faithful. Faithful. I give you one thing to do, very little. It's not grand, it's not huge, it's not what the world is after, in fact the world hates it, but I give you a thing to do. You've been faithful in that thing. I've been suggesting to you that that is the application of the gospel to everything that we can, wherever we go, wherever we are, whatever the season of life. And Jesus says, faithful, you've been faithful. Gave you one responsibility. Make use of the gospel. This they did. And there's also then their reward. Their reputation, responsibility, and reward. Have the authority over ten cities. Like I say, note the distinction. Given three months wages, he multiplies it tenfold, but then authority over ten cities. Now, Calvin warns here that we are not to take this literally, like believers are given governance over literal cities, especially when we think of the glorified state where there's one city, as it were. But the point, the driving point is that there is a distinction of reward that is given to faithful servants. One is given ten cities, the other is given five. The sense is that We we have this opportunity and the Lord deposits to us the gospel and we are to be faithful using it, applying it, sharing it, supporting it. And that's faithful labor. And the Lord then rewards. I have dealt with the idea of differing rewards before the Lord in the past. There's a lot there we don't know. There's much in terms of uncertainty about how this all unfolds and how the Lord delegates at the last, depending on the faithfulness of His people. Suffice to say, we're told that it happens. And the reason we're told that much is to motivate us. At least in part. It's to motivate us. The Lord is saying, I'm going away. Occupy till I come, and I will reward you when I come back. And believers, I think that will be an eye-opening experience. I think a lot of preachers will be at the bottom of the totem pole and there will be a lot of faithful believers who never were known and never preached a sermon even, and yet were faithful and diligent in their business and occupying till the Lord's return. And they are seen as good servants, faithful over very little. Don't waste your life. American dream. You wake up having lived for some form of societal aspiration, and you wake up in an eternal nightmare. So the second also is the same as we've noted. But then there's retribution. As we close here, it's retribution. Verse 20 through to the end. The bulk of this is given over to the the unfaithful servant. The bad servant. And then the last verse to the the enemies. So look at the retribution here. I'll just touch on this. The language speaks for itself. You're not too Read too much into it, try to draw too much out of it. Get the point, get the sense. Always let the parable, the sense of the parable drive its point. This is we are so foolish. We get caught up in these these discussions about nuances of the parables that aren't the point of the parable. Don't miss the point. Don't waste your life. That's what Jesus is saying. You're discussing here with aspirations for an immediate kingdom which will bring a great peace and prosperity in the land, and you're just wasting your life. And another came saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. Now the language that follows, there's debate. Is there truth to this? Is there a certain austere frame of the Lord, perhaps it could be argued. At the same time, it just could be the reflection of the heart of the man who's, how they, he is viewing, how he has viewed the Lord. Finds no joy in the Lord. He's a complete opposite to blind Bartimaeus who immediately received his sight and followed him glorifying God. He, he doesn't have the praise and joy there, I fear thee because thou art an austere man, thou takest up that thou laidst not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. And so he's charging him with a certain injustice. And he saith unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thou my money into the bank? at my coming, I might have acquired mine own with usury. Now, I don't know all that's going on here. I'm just being honest with you. I don't know, you know, what is it for someone to take what has been deposited to us and just give it to the bank? I mean, what is that? Is it, is it just you, you, you took it onto yourself at least? At least you took it into the gospel yourself? Though no, you didn't share it? You didn't do anything with it? You didn't go to others with it? I don't know. don't miss the point. The point is, you have a simple task. I have given you something to make use of. I am going away. Stay faithful in doing what I have asked you to do until I come back. Instead, this servant was idle. Did nothing with what the Lord gave him. He just looked at it. He comes up with what may be simply an excuse concerning how he might be treated if he loses it or something. All of that we're unsure of. The point is this: He has misused what was given. And so, verse twenty-four, you have this retribution. He said unto him, unto them that stood by, take from him the pound and give it unto him that hath ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he hath ten pounds. For I say unto you that unto every one which hath shall be given, and from him that hath not even that he hath shall be taken from him. Even when there's little there, if there's this unfaithfulness that marks your life, it will be taken from you. In other words, the deposit of truth, the blessings of Christ, the responsibility of stewardship in your life, however that looks, and I'm suggesting the gospel is a The broadest way in which to encapsulate the sense of what the Lord expects of us while He's gone away. You're to make use of it. Make use of it. And if you don't, there's a danger of judgment. And the wicked enemies, they're also addressed. Those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. What a scene. The nobleman standing in the presence of those who tried to make it difficult for the servants to do their job and constantly rejected and despised his authority and the kingdom that he was, was obtaining. Slay them before me. That's, that's not the picture of Jesus that most people present, is it? Slay them before me. It's like those who will stand in the presence of the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb? Have you ever seen the wrath of a Lamb? Don't waste your life That's the bottom line. If you're a Christian, you have one thing. Get the gospel out. Apply it to your life. Share it with your family. Teach it to your children. Encourage your spouse. Talk to your parents. Bring the gospel in. Your community. Pray with them. Pray for them. When there's something you know that is going on in their lives, don't sit back and just not see it, this is an opportunity to go in there, to pray for them, to share with them the Word of God. Have literature at the ready. Try, try every way you can to share the good news. It's good news. Do you believe it? It's good news. Amidst all the bad news. Oh, if Christians would actually share it like they thought it was good news. That it was written over their face like someone who's coming with the best news. Did you hear this? The most glorious news they ever heard. And you can see it written all over their face. They walk into work. They just found out that they're going to become grandparents. You know, you can see it written all over your face. You walk into work. People know. And if Christians began to live like they believed the gospel was good news. It would be written all over our faces, wouldn't it? More readily we would share it those of you who are rejecting the gospel, rejecting the reign of Christ over your life, playing fast and loose with what is put before you and declaring either explicitly or within your heart with a certain unbelief or rejection, I will not have this man to reign over me. You will perish. You will perish. Our Lord Jesus is about to go to Jerusalem to die for sinners. He's making His way there. He is declaring His intention. People ought to have gotten the idea by now what He is there to do, to lay down His life, to bear the sins of many, to become a substitute for sinners, and they're still rejecting all of His miracles. They're signifying truth that you're blind, spiritually blind, but I give you sight. You're a beggar, but I give you riches. You're a leper, but I cleanse you. And over and over and over and over and over again for three years, they've had nothing but irrefutable witness and testimony that this is the Son of God. And they say, We will not have this man to reign over us, he will perish. Believe. This is good news. Is good news. Christ receiveth sinful men. He comes to be guest with a man that is a sinner. Guest with sinners. Preacher, how do I qualify to have this grace of all my sins forgiven and be adopted into the family of God? First, acknowledge you're a sinner and then run to Jesus. It really is no more complicated than that. Get yourself there before the Lord. Don't waste your life. Let's pray together in prayer. Sometimes people are tormented by thoughts of "Why am I here?" Questions that have plagued the mind of men for millennia. The Lord Jesus, He makes it He makes it really simple for you. Your objective is to live to the glory of God. It is one that you cannot do entirely by your own effort because by nature you're a sinner. But He has come to transform your life, to deal with the problem of your sin, and reconcile you to God, and give you a footing upon which you can serve and occupy till the Master returns. So whatever your occupation, whatever your season of life, whatever your place in this world, put first, first things. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Don't, don't see it right there before you. Don't, Taste the gospel in this service and then turn away. Dine on the bread of life by faith. Take Christ as he is offered to you freely. And he will pardon, forgive, cleanse, and bless you. If we can be of any help to you, please be sure to let us know. Our God and Father, please bless thy word. Hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against thee. We desire that we would receive the language, good servant. Please, Lord, help us to be good servants. Just a short life over in a flash. Help us to be good servants. Bless this congregation. Help us. Do bless our time of fellowship tonight and keep thy word ever at the forefront of our minds. May we this week even be more faithful by thy grace. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Love of God, our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people, now and evermore. Amen.